As you turn to Genesis 14, that's right, not Hebrews, Genesis 14, you will read a really interesting story about a battle, the battle of four kings versus five kings. In fact, some of your Bibles maybe even have that uh, introduction or title above that paragraph. Something definitely that probably influenced Tolkien when he wrote The Hobbit or Lord of Rings. Um, because you hear some of, so much similar type language and weird sounding names and places and this type of battling happening. Those are all named in the first few verses of the chapter. I'm not going to read it. You can read that on your own. I'm not going to try and pronounce all that. But more details are given as he goes on. Years of rule and rebellion and eventually war. And in the context of reading this story in Genesis, you might be like, why is this story in Genesis? If this is all new to you, you've come along and you've seen the creation of the world and the nations formed. And, and then Abram is introduced in Genesis 12 and his nephew Lot. And they're deciding where to live. And you're like, what is all these kings about? And then you get down to verse 12, and you read, They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. Ah, that's why this story is included. Abram and uh, his nephew Lot had too many flocks and herds. They couldn't live around each other in Genesis 13. Lot had chosen to live near Sodom, and now he's gone and gotten himself captured in a war between nine kings. So Abram rounds up his army, if you keep reading, of 318 men. He chases after, rescues Lot and his family. And then picking up in verse 13, he brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. Verse 17, after Abram returned from defeating Chedorlaomer of the hill people and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shava Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to the God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, as you turn to Hebrews chapter 7, which is where we'll be the rest of our time, we continue the story of this odd and curious character, Melchizedek, mentioned here in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, and now all over the book of Hebrews, and that's it in the entire Bible. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, if you remember, began to make his case for the importance of Melchizedek way back in Hebrews 5. If you look at verse 10 of Hebrews 5, he says, He, Jesus, was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And if you remember... The writer goes on to say, I'm, I'm, I need to tell you these really complicated things, but you're not ready for it. You're not mature enough. And then he goes on into chapter se- 6 to say, well, even though you're not mature enough, you're not ready, we're going to do it anyway, because you need to know this. And he gives them a warning, and he gives them some encouragement. If you follow through chapter 6, Jesse walked us through that uh, last week. Going into verse 20, Jesus has uh, entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because... He has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Same language. And now we come into chapter 7. We're going to finally dig deep into the well that is Melchizedek. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abram and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. 
without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He remains a priest forever. Now, consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive a tenth, but in another case, a scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, I know that all makes perfect sense. I don't really need to say much about it, so we'll just move on to the next section. No wonder he got sidetracked about their maturity before diving into all this. He's like, okay, this is... This is complicated for me to write about, and, and I'm expecting you to understand this. Let's try and, and look at what he's trying to show us. In, in essence, the point the author is making is Jesus and his priesthood, which was foreshadowed by this character Melchizedek, is far greater and much better than the Levitical priesthood. And I know you're super excited to show up here today and hear a sermon on Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthood. Like it's top ten Bible for you. But remember the big thrust of Hebrews, don't fall away. Don't turn back from Jesus. Don't go back into the old ways of practicing your faith. Jesus is better than angels, better than Moses, as we've seen throughout Hebrews, better than anyone and anything. And if you turn away from him into something you think is safer and more tame, or something you think that will, be, that will invite less suffering and persecution in your life, it's a huge mistake. You can't turn away from this Jesus and expect life and salvation. Like you can't go back to something and sprinkle a little Jesus on and think that that's going to equal life and salvation. You turn away from Jesus, you lose Jesus. That's what he's saying throughout this letter of Hebrews. Don't retreat now. And he's going to spend considerable time comparing Jesus to these Levitical priests and the whole practice of temple sacrifices and rituals throughout chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. So this is going to be something you're going to hear a lot over the next several weeks. And part of the reason for that is because when this letter was originally written, those temple practices were still happening. The temple wasn't destroyed until 70 A.D. This letter predates that. It wasn't like the Jews agreed Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away their sins. Most of them didn't. They thought they had killed another false Messiah, and so they continued the temple rituals. Even though Jesus says it is finished, they didn't care. Even though the temple veil was torn in two, it didn't matter to them. They just fixed it. Let's just keep doing the rituals. And if these believers in Italy and around Rome thought they, that they could continue to put their hope in this system to make them right with God, to allow them to draw near to God, they were hopelessly mistaken. Life and salvation and hope and intimacy with God only come through the perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. So we cling to him. Let's first see that, that begin to be established by seeing how Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And the first thing we see is that Melchizedek is a greater priest because he is both priest and king. This is mentioned in the opening words of chapter 7. Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high. 
The significance of that is that this is not how those roles function throughout the Old Testament. Priests were never doing the, the work of the king. And when the kings of Israel tried to do the work of the priest, they got in big trouble. Big trouble. Saul in 1 Samuel 13 was first, uh, just established as a king and he has his first battle with the Philistines and he's waiting on Samuel the priest to show up and offer the sacrifices before they go into battle. And he gets tired of waiting after seven days, so Saul's like, I'll just do it myself. And when Samuel shows up and realizes what he's done, he says, that's it, you're done. You will not be a king any longer. God's already anointed the next one. One time, you're finished. Uzziah, famous in Isaiah 6, in the year I saw Uzziah, King Uzziah die, that Uzziah also tried to take on the work of the priest. And God cursed him with leprosy and he died in 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 26. In God's kingdom, you don't cross those roles. But here is a man who is king of Salem, the precursor to Jerusalem, and a priest of God Most High, the only other person in Scripture who is described in the same way as both priest and king is Jesus. Certainly no one in the Levitical line of priests. Secondly, Melchizedek, what makes him greater is he's an eternal priest. You see this in the odd description beginning in verse 2, where it says, First, his name means king of righteousness. Literally, his name broken down into Hebrew means that. Then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. That's what Salem, Shalom means. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, he almost sounds divine if you read that. In fact, some commentators have tried to say, well, maybe this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is eternal, didn't just show up alive as a little baby in Bethlehem, but has always lived as the second person of the Trinity. There are a few occasions in the Old Testament where it really seems like this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus before he took on flesh and became a babe. But this is not one of them. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, resembling the Son of God. He's like the Son of God, but he's not the Son of God. But he seems to just show up out of nowhere and then disappear. But that's not because he really wasn't born, Melchizedek, and really didn't die. It's just from our human perspective, what we have recorded in Scripture, that's what it seems to be. Now, we know he was a human. He had an actual father and mother. We know they really died. The point the author is making is he seems like he was divine, and therefore he has a priesthood that, as far as we know from the pages of Scripture, never ended. It continued. It is eternal. This was a big contrast with the Levitical priests. Here they are interceding on your behalf. They're offering sacrifices for your sins. They're providing atonement for your sins. They're allowing you to remain in right standing with God or at least enough right standing to be blessed by God and not cursed by God. And then one day the God dies. Harvey, your local priest, had been doing all this work for you, and then Harvey's dead. What do you do? You're, you can't just make yourself priest. You can't just go appoint. You've you got to hope that there's another one who's going to step up and show up and be the next priest in the line of, of Le, the Levites, the line of Aaron. He's just a human like you, and so you depend on another f- a fragile, feeble human following all the rules to keep 
your atonement going so you can stay in right step with God and continue to be blessed by God. Not with Melchizedek, not with priests in the order of Melchizedek. They are eternal. Their service never ends. And this is a greater priesthood because of that fact. They continue in that role forever. They don't die. Thirdly, Melchizedek blesses Abram and receives his tithe. Melchizedek is a greater high priest because of how he relates to Abram. He comes out, the writer of Hebrews doesn't point this out, but the story in Genesis does. He comes out to bless Abram with bread and wine, significant in what they would be the precursor to, what we know unfolds in the rest of the scriptures, the elements of what Jesus uses to bless his disciples, how the church has continued to remember the person and work of Jesus one pastor this past week uh, where we were gathered in, the, in a conference orientation encouraged us in the weekly uh, sharing of communion. He, he talked about how in most churches, if you uh, show up one Sunday and you don't have communion, it's not that big of a deal. It might be common, normal. Nobody really even misses it. But if you, you show up one Sunday and they don't have songs, ugh, there's no offering or greeting time or, or whatever is normal, why have we so downplayed one of the only two ordinances Jesus has given us by which we remember who he is and what he has done? So be affirmed that we are a church that shares in this meal every single week because we want to elevate what Jesus intends for that to be for us. Melchizedek doesn't just bless the one with bread and wine and this blessing from God, he speaks over him. But then Abram, the one to whom the covenant promises of God were given, it's in Genesis 12, the significance, as the writer points out, is the inferior is blessed by the superior. Abraham, Abram, whichever one you want to use, is the one that God has pro- given the promises to, Genesis 12. I'll bless you and, and make you a blessing to all the earth. Whoever blesses you is blessed, whoever curses you is cursed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the gospel. But he is blessed by Melchizedek. And the writer is very explicit there in Hebrews 7 that this is the superior, without a doubt, verse 7, the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now I can see some of the more sarcastic, snarky members of our church after we're done here walking around. I bless you. I bless you. I bless you. Just kind of reminding you, I'm superior, you're inferior. Or maybe that's how... Mind works. My mind works. But the principle is this is how that works. Now, there are passages. On, when I was reading, I was like, wait, wait a second. What about the passages where it says, we bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. But that's more of a blessing of praise than a blessing, obviously, of a superior to one who is inferior. That's, this blessing is I am here and I am descending to, to give you something, to bless you, to give you something that you don't have in and of yourself already. And in return... Before the law was ever written, Abram freely and willingly gave a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek as a gift of gratitude. And this is where it gets confusing. In a strange way, because Abram was the forefather of the Levi tribe, because Abram would have a son named Isaac, would have a son named Jacob, who had 12 sons, one of them being Levi, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. Levi, that tribe, will become a tribe specifically of priests, And so while the priestly tribe of Levi Levi would later in the Old Testament receive from the people a tithe, which would be a gift, a way to free them up from working normal jobs so they could have the time they need to serve as priests and take care of the temple and tabernacle. 
Now, in Genesis 14, their forefather, in respect, the tribe of Levi, who is in the loins of Abram, doesn't receive the tithe, but gives the tithe to Melchizedek, thus also showing the priesthood to be greater. So, in a, in a very normal way of thinking for these people, and way back when, the tribe of Levi is, in essence, tithing to Melchizedek. I know it's very technical, very hard to follow. I hope for us it's as clear as mud. But for those who heard this, it was very clear. They were well versed in these, this understanding of culture and how it worked and, and who Melchizedek was and how these temple proceedings happened. And that's, that's basically the first ten verses of the chapter. Why Melchizedek is a greater priest than the tribe of Levites. Because he is eternal, because he is priest and king because he blesses Abraham and receives a tithe from Abraham and thus the Levitical tribe. Now let's take it a step further, more relevant to us even, why Jesus, who is from the priestly line of Melchizedek according to Psalm 110, why is he also greater than the Levitical priesthood? First, Jesus coming in the line of Melchizedek reveals the shortcomings of the Levitical priesthood. Picking up in verse 11. Now, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. If perfection, completion, full fulfillment, could come through the Levitical priest, then why do we have Psalm 110? Which is quoted there in verse 17. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Really, the rest of this chapter is an exposition of Psalm 110. A psalm written by King David. The Levitical priesthood had already been serving for hundreds of years in the tabernacle. The temple was about to be built in the, in the lifetime of King Solomon where they would continue to serve for hundreds and hundreds of years offering sacrifices, slaughtering numbers of animals that can't be counted to atone for the sins of the people. And yet David writes Psalm 110, a messianic psalm, promising one who would come not in the order of Levitical priest, but in the order of this obscure guy from Genesis 14 that no one has said anything about until David wrote about him in Psalm 110. Why in the world? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, David put down before the people the need for a greater priesthood than what this Levitical priesthood is providing. And, and we've touched on this before, and we're going to continue to see this over the next several chapters. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was not wrong, but it was never intended to be everything for the full fulfillment of God's atonement for our sin. Just like the law, the law was not wrong or bad, but the law was never intended to save. Its main purpose was to reveal our need of a Savior. So Paul digs deep into this in Galatians, a book, a letter, by the way, written to a bunch of Christians who were leaving behind the gospel and going back into Judaism in a much greater way than the the, the listeners of the book of Hebrews. Paul's strongest words were for the Galatian believers. You are believing a false gospel so he hammers the importance and the understanding of the law 
for New Testament Christians. And he says in Galatians 3.19, Why then was the law given? Why do we have the law? If we can't be saved by keeping the law, then why did God ever give us the law? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made, Jesus, would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator, Moses. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. The guardian was a keeper of God's people, a way for them to relate to God, have relationship with God, until the full fulfillment of the law came, the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And when he came, we got the full revelation of what God had intended all along. This is how he wanted us to relate to him, through faith in Jesus. He's the only one who kept the law perfectly, And he's the only one that gives us access to God. The law, the Old Testament sacrifices were given to help us see we can't be good enough. We are through and through sinful and we need a Savior. This is why we'll see later in Hebrews 11, the saints in the Old Testament were saved not by keeping the law, but by having faith in the one who was to come, the Redeemer who was to come, the city whose builder and maker is God, who who was to come. They were saved looking forward to the Redeemer that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And we today are saved by looking back to the one who has come and did accomplish everything. We, by God's grace, have the full revelation. They had shadows and, and signs that were ultimately fulfilled in the substance that was Jesus. So Jesus coming in the line of Melchizedek is God showing his plan. The law and sacrificial uh, sacrificial system were never meant to be the fulfillment of his plan of redemption, but to point forward to the one who was to come and be the final sacrifice, the one who would declare it is finished. Most of the Jews did not see or believe in Jesus that way, and that is why the sacrifices in the temple continued until it was destroyed in 78 AD. But for those who did believe, the early church they realized we no longer had to participate in those rituals. In fact, as you read through Acts in the New Testament letters, they begin to realize more and more they had been set free from many of the Old Testament rituals and regulations that were fulfilled in Christ. The Sabbath practices, the dietary laws, the kosher lifestyle, the feasts and festivals over time became less and less a part of God's people Because Jesus was the final and full realization of those signs and shadows. And this had to happen. If the gospel was going to go where Jesus said it was going to go to the ends of the earth in Matthew 28 and Acts 1-8, to see people from all languages come to know him, it had to lose that distinctive Jewish flavor. It would always be tethered to Judaism. 
because that's where it started. But it had to lose that distinctive Jewish flavor where it made it seem as though you had to become Jewish to be part of the people of God. Acts 15, if you go read that, is all about Christianity losing that distinctive Jewish flavor so that you could become a Christian without becoming Jewish. And this is what had to happen for the gospel to cross cultures. We spent this past week with uh, Ascending Org that's focused on getting the gospel to hard places. And I have to be very vague because this is going to be in a podcast and this is on Facebook. But you know who we're sending out. And you know where they're going. And stories were told of this sending organization in different countries that they have done this work in. And it can be amazingly complicated to get in these countries with integrity. With integrity. And be a blessing to the people you're trying to reach by not just giving out gospel pamphlets, but by actually living life with them, getting to know them, learn their language, bless them, translate the Bible, see a church started. This is a a 15 to 20 year work minimum by God's grace. Can you imagine if part of that is sitting down with this different culture and saying, okay, guys, let's talk circumcision. Y'all have any knives? Let's talk dietary laws. Let's talk Sabbath keeping. Why do we have to do that? Everything has sounded great until now. Well, because God's people did that thousands of years ago in the Middle East. But what about all those passages in the New Testament that seem to make it clear those days are over? We have a different interpretation. Like you would lose 100% of the gospel message to an unnecessary set of traditions and regulations that Jesus never intended to be part of getting the gospel to people of all nations. You would completely lose the gospel by elevating something that had become secondary. Jesus coming in the order of Melchizedek as the greater high priest, the better priest, shows the shortcomings of the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system. It had a purpose, but its purpose was not ultimate. It was always to point to a greater sacrifice, a greater priest, a greater atonement. Secondly, Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood because he did not become a priest through a genealogical line, but through his resurrected life. Read verse, uh, look at verse 13. For the one these things are spoken about belong to a different tribe. No one from it, that different tribe, he's talking about the tribe of Judah, No one from it has served at the altar because that was reserved for the priests, Levitical priests, tribe of Levi. Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah and Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. Because in the law, it was the tribe of Levi who were priests. And this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears who did not become a priest based on a legal regulation about physical descent but based on the power of an indestructible life. For it has been testified, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, the one these things are spoken about, being not of the tribe of Levi, but the tribe of Judah, not a tribe that was spoken of as one that would serve at the altar. So Jesus wasn't a priest because he could trace his lineage through the tribe of Levi back to Aaron, the brother of Moses, but because he could trace his lineage back to the picture of an eternal priesthood, Melchizedek. Now, in the ways in which we know those things weren't true of Melchizedek, in other words, Melchizedek seemed eternal. He really wasn't eternal. 
They are true of Jesus. Jesus and his work as a priest continue because he actually is eternal. Look, just look down at verse 25 that we'll look at next week. Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them because he's still alive. He's interceding for us right now. Why is this possible? Because Jesus isn't dead. All the Levitical priests are dead. The temple is destroyed. There are no more sacrifices being made. But the work of Jesus was completed and his effects continue to today because, he says, his life is indestructible. It's the only time this word appears in the New Testament. It means a life that cannot be brought to an end. Certainly, it could be referring to Jesus' divine nature, the fact that God cannot die. More than likely, it's referring to his human bodily physically re- physical resurrection. Unlike the Levitical priest who all died, Jesus died but was resurrected, defeating death. All you had to do to be a priest in the tribe of Levi was to be born to the right family. Jesus wasn't born into that family, but he qualifies as a priest because he crushed death. And his work as a priest continues. And again, we'll dig into that a lot more in uh, the rest of Hebrews. Thirdly, lastly, Jesus is greater because he gives us a better hope that helps us draw near to God. Verse 18, so the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable. For the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Again, the law doesn't save or make us perfect. In fact, it's so much lesser than than Jesus. It's described here as weak and unprofitable. Now, it wasn't weak and unprofitable in its time because they didn't have the full revelation yet. But when Jesus came, it definitely became weak and unprofitable. Why would you still practice this? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't do any of the things you think it's doing for you. The law is not evil. It had a purpose, but not able to do what Jesus has done. The Israelites had come year after year, bringing sacrifice after sacrifice, hoping it was enough, hoping the priest did it right, hoping the sacrifice was pure and spotless enough, and then leave And never really know if their sins were forgiven or atoned for. Just to come back next year and do it again. But Jesus gives us a better hope. Again, that word better, all throughout Hebrews, better. What Jesus has come to do is better than what these Jewish Christians are tempted to return to. It's better hope because through his work, it is finished. No more sacrifices to be made. Once and for all, there is full forgiveness and freedom from the penalty of sin. From what keeps us from drawing near to God, the temple veil has been torn in half. Now through Jesus we can draw near. Some application. Whew, thank goodness. Uh, i put it in one sentence. Jesus alone is our ultimate source of life, hope, and intimacy with God. This indestructible life, this better hope, through Jesus we draw near to God. These hearers and readers were foolishly tempted to find life, hope, and nearness to God by returning to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Can you imagine? It wasn't just that it no longer is effectual even in the same way that it had been effectual for thousands of years because Jesus has come and it is finished and the temple veil is torn in two. 
is not just that, but if they did return to that lifestyle, practicing those sacrifices, after a period of time, 70 AD is going to hit and it's gone. What do we do now? Where, where do we go now? The temple was the presence of God. The sacrifices were the way that we stay in right relationship with God, the way we draw near to God. Where is our hope in life now if this is all gone? It's weak, ineffectual, unprofitable. And the writer of Hebrews is shouting, it's in Jesus. It's all in Jesus. You don't have to even go back and play around with it for a little while. I'm telling you now, it's in Jesus. Jesus is the temple that was torn down and rebuilt in three days. Jesus is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And now you, the people of God, are the dwelling place of God. You are the temple. You can't get closer to God than Him living inside of you, His people. All possible because of Jesus. No more trips to Jerusalem. He's with you always. You have life in Him. Your hopes are realized and fulfilled in Him. And guys, it's the same for us. When we are tempted to wander back to the weak and unprofitable sources of life, hope, and intimacy with God outside of Jesus. So what are or where are some of the places that you go apart from Jesus to find hope, life, and the presence of God? But they are actually weak and unprofitable to find life places are things that we do to find life and meaning and purpose I'm really something if I'm the smartest guy in the room I have answers to everyone's questions I have solutions to everyone's problems I know all the geography trivia facts about sports uh, cultural nuance I mean I can describe all that I'm tuned into that my palate is amazing. Uh, if you ask me what good food is and you go eat that food, I'm telling you, it's going to be good food because I have the palate of all palate. I mean, all the different things that people do to give them purpose, meaning, life, identity, success, achievements. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I've accomplished. All of these things become idols. And the thing about idols is that They are horrible saviors because either the idol dies or you die. It's one or the other. Always. Nothing is built to sustain what we need in the deepest part of our being. So what are the broken cisterns and what are the empty wells that we are chasing to give us life and meaning and purpose and value that are just becoming idols in our heart because we're chasing it apart from Jesus. And we're not making Jesus our ultimate source of life and meaning and purpose and value. Start with Him. Let Him settle deeply inside of us, become the what captivates us, what grabs our deepest and strongest and highest affections. Chase Him. And then chase whatever He calls you to chase. But you have to chase Him first. He has to be settled first. If you're going to have true, abundant, eternal life. We often find great hope in circumstances turning out the way we want. So our hope is tied to how life goes according to how we define life. It's literally like we're living like we're king in the universe. 
when it's actually Jesus who's king of all. So we trust how we think or even try to make circumstances work out. And when it seems to be going our way, yes, my plans are working. We can be filled with great hope and joy. But when it doesn't seem to be going our way, we can literally crash and go into deep despair and feel hopeless. And this is a great sign that your hope really ultimately isn't in Jesus, but it's really in you and how you want life to go. And when it goes your way, Life is good, and you are so such a delight to be around. When it's not going your way, everybody better make a way because the fire of heaven is about to be called down. If you're riding that roller coaster of emotion, it could be your hope ultimately isn't in Jesus. You're struggling to put it in Jesus constantly. If your hope is resting and active in Jesus, then we can ride the ups and downs of life with this buoyancy. We don't get overly excited because we're getting what we want because humbly we know it's only by God's grace. We're not ultimately the one making it happen. And we don't go into deep despair when life doesn't seem to be going our way because we trust that our Father in heaven has us. Even when we rightly grieve what is broken in the world and in us, it's never this hopeless grief. It's always grief intermingled with hope because sin, brokenness, despair, injustice doesn't ultimately win. Jesus wins. And as hard and difficult as these days and these circumstances might be, we know it won't always be like this. Because Jesus is our ultimate source of life, hope, and intimacy the presence of God and Jesus is our eternal king and priest and never changes he's always present living in us never leaving us or forsaking us as we'll find out in Hebrews 13 5 then if that's true we always have access to this eternal well of life and hope and intimacy with God because we always have Jesus therefore we know if we are overwhelmed with fear, frustration, aggravation, anger, despair, hopelessness, anxiety, worry. If we are so overwhelmed to the point that we are stuck in those emotions, seemingly drowning in them, then we know in that moment we are not getting from Jesus what he desires for us to have, his life, his hope, his presence. So our emotions become this flashing dashboard light, warning, warning, warning. And we've all been there. We Maybe we're there right now, stuck and seemingly drowning in these negative emotions, and it seems like we can't come up for air. We can't see beyond it. So when we are there, or if you are there right now, then hear the word of the Lord. And I pray, receive and believe the word of the Lord. Jesus is right here, right now, wanting you to see him, receive from him, and be transformed again by his life, his hope, his presence. And Jesus, as we've say, said many times, John Piper famously said, Jesus can do more in three seconds than we can accomplish in a lifetime. 
turn from the despair, the anger, the frustration, the anxiety. Turn from that and see and believe Jesus and receive from him hope, life, and his presence. He's never left you. He'll never leave you. He is not intended for what you're walking through right now to destroy you. To destroy your marriage, to destroy your family. He is for you, in your corner, has your back more than anyone else in the world. There's never anyone who, who says, oh, I love you so much. Yeah, but they're just another human. And they're going to let you down. They can't always be around. They can't be there in the middle of the night when you're waking up unable to sleep because the weight of what is crushing you is so heavy. Jesus is there for you in your corner, has your back, wanting to give you all of his life, all of his hope, all of his presence, intimacy with God. He's in these hard circumstances. Ray Ortland famously said, famously, he said, I don't know if it's famous, but he said at our retreat a couple weeks ago, the mantra of Emmanuel Nashville, kind of this little saying that they created to remember who they are in Christ. Number one, I am a complete idiot. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. And number three, anyone can get in on this. Maybe for some here, this turning from sin and brokenness to Jesus, is Jesus saving you? Like this is regeneration happening. It's you coming alive in Christ. New life happening. You're spiritually going from death to life. And if today is the day of your salvation, please let us know so we can celebrate and walk with you so you can know and follow and live in life with Jesus and his people. For many of us, it's probably not regeneration, but maybe it's revival. It's something that you've known before, you know it's true, deep down inside of you gets lost under the weight of all this negative emotions. And today, the Spirit of God, the Word of God is reviving that in you. Like, oh, that's right, yes. And by God's grace, it'll be just enough that you'll need to get to that next point where you need Jesus again. And guess what? He will bring exactly what you need in that moment as well. This is why we gather together as God's people on a regular basis. Because we need the people of God speaking the truth of God, the truth of who Jesus is, constantly into our life. Because we are pro so prone to wonder. We are so prone to forget. We are so prone to just go into the pit of the negativity of life and the brokenness of ourselves and the world around us. And Jesus wants to pull us out and give us hope and life in him. Father, thank you so much for your grace and love and mercy that you have so richly given us your son Jesus with all that is him, life, his, the power of his indestructible life, hope, a better hope than anything else we could chase so that through Jesus we could draw near to God, experience pr the presence of God. We can live in the presence of the God who made us, even though we are still sinful, even though we still struggle, even though the, on our best days it seems we're stumbling forward. Because of Jesus, we can live in the presence of God and experience intimacy with God.
So I pray, Jesus, that you would come for everyone who's here, for everyone who might be listening, that you would come and just overwhelm your people with your presence. That it be strong, that it be sweet, that it speak to the deepest struggles that we're going through and that it bring healing and hope and restoration so that we can be busy about making the goodness of Jesus known to those who haven't heard. God, you've created us to glorify you by spreading your name far and wide so that more people can come alive in you and find their ultimate joy in you. So help us to be busy about that because we are caught up in Jesus. Do this in us and through us for your glory, we pray in his name.